Hello, everyone. This is episode 27 of the Uncivilized Podcast. I am Brady, and today joining me is Artemis. Today we're going to talk about the Luddite Rebellion, who they were, what they fought for, and why you should like them. Fair enough. So we're going to set the scene here. It's England, the early 19th century. Going on now is the Industrial Revolution. It's reaching a peak. You're starting to see the mechanization of labor. Uh, it's also the peak of the enclosure movement. For those that don't know, the enclosure movement is essentially the breaking up of the commons, the shared agricultural space of the peasants, and moving them, essentially trying to force them into the cities and, and give more power um, to the urban employing class as well as to the manorial lords. Uh, so you see a change, of course, from mass agriculture, uh, skilled crafts and self-reliance to industry, untrained or so-called unskilled labor, efficiency, and dependence. But then we also have the Napoleonic War, which Brady's going to talk about. Yeah, so this kind of period of time we're talking about is during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, everybody knows, maybe not everybody knows, I have a problem, that the Napoleonic Wars went from 1803 to 1815. The time period that we're talking about right now with the Luddite Rebellion is going to be from 1811 to 1816 starting right after the War of the Fifth Coalition and going through the War of the Sixth Coalition, the Seventh Coalition, and ending during the time of the Peninsular War. Yeah, and that's going to be important when we talk about what it means for England to crush the Luddite Rebellion. Because you've just... The Napoleonic War is a war that you can call it in the eyes of the people probably necessary because there's an, it's one of those things that it's not like in the U.S. or wars now where it's something far off. It's the thing that, you know, France is trying to invade England, uh, but the impact of the war, the context at home, um, high taxes, food prices, unemployment, right? All the things that you kind of imagine with the European war at this time is there and it's intense. And to try and offset this, you start seeing the rise of automation. And part of that is fueled by what we called early, you know, what we said earlier, the untrained or unskilled labor. So a lot of men, because of the economic conditions of the war, choose to sign up and fight. Those that are left to work are the skilled laborers that might have had a little bit better off than, than the typical peasant or the people that are newly to urban areas. Uh, so the people that are taking up these jobs aren't these manual or these, these skilled workers. They don't need to, but it's uh, men who are unfit for war, men who choose not to go to war, uh, women and children. Women and children are essential to the industrial period of this time. Um, because they'll take the jobs uh, that men don't want because, you know, there might be wage protections in some cases, uh, but those don't apply to uh, women and children. Uh, and so you start to see the competition, so to speak, between this unskilled labor and the skilled labor of the handlooms, right? I think a thing that we really need to remember during this time of the Napoleonic Wars for the average British citizen is just the amount of poverty unemployment and just all around general misery that they were going through. Um, looking on the British Library UK website, um, I'm reading a section under poverty employment, uh, poverty and unemployment that states, as well as increasing the size of the army and the navy, the British government responded by strengthening existing defenses and building new ones along the south coast. These reinforcements came at no small cost and taxes were again increased to fund the war effort. Many British men and women were left in desperate misery due to high taxes, skyrocketing food prices, and unemployment caused by wartime trade. 
um, and the increased use of labor-saving machinery, which is what we're going to focus on today. Economic struggles forced many men to sign up for the army. Uh, in the popular Lancashire ballad, Joan O'Grinfeld, the protagonist illustrates the choice between enlisting and starving. Joan tells his wife that he will fight either the Spanish or the French before he spends another day cold and hungry. And I think really this amount of misery that is being described for the average person during this period in the UK is something that I don't think that they have really experienced since really the serf and peasant days. And you won't see that again up until World War One. And from what I've seen, I don't think we can even necessarily compare that to what they felt during World War One for the average person. Obviously, more human life was lost during World War One, but it really gives you an idea of what the average laborer, whether it's skilled or unskilled, rural or urban, is experiencing in this time. Right. And so, which is why it's important, the next idea we're going to get into is that this is a working class movement, right? So you have these skilled craftsmen, and historically, depending where they fall, because skilled craftsmen is also kind of like um, a spectrum or like there's levels to this. The higher skilled ones kind of end up moving, depending on what field they're in, towards being the bourgeoisie. And then some of those on the lower planes probably be moving more towards what we understand to be like the working class today. Um, but there's a really great quote from this article called Luddite's Industrial Revolution and the Demographic Change. And it says, today, the term Luddite often refers to opponents of technological progress for its own sake. At the time, however, Luddites were engaged in what Hasbaum has termed, quote, collective bargaining by riot. In none of these cases, there was a question of hostility to machines as such. Wrecking was simply a technique of trade unionism on part of the skilled textile workers whose living standards were being eroded by new machinery. This new machinery was making it possible for employers not just to produce cloth more effect efficiently, but to use cheaper unskilled workers, women and even children, in the place of highly paid artisans. Not surprisingly, skilled workers objected to this. So again, going back to the idea of utilizing um, those that had less pl uh, lower place in society, children and women, right? And so you have an early trade movement going on. You don't have the Chartists quite yet. Like the Chartists aren't um, developing their movement in the same way. That kind of starts in like the late 1830s, which is about two decades after this. Uh, but you do have an idea of, of, of trade unionism, trade unionism happening at this time. Um, and so this idea that some people look back, and we'll get to this later, is that the Luddites, there's nothing to learn from them. It's all hodgepodge. It's it's nothing. Um, there is a level of working class resistance. But I kind of think that I think making this distinction there, I'm not a big fan of because these people were concretely losing their way of life. This is the transition from kind of a mercantile capitalism or mercantile feudalism to true capitalism, right? With the industrial revolution. Absolutely. And so, and so like these people are losing their livelihoods. And so to think that it's, oh, well, they're not revolting against technology. It's like, well, yeah, they are. It's just not in the, in the sense of like, it, you know, they're not doing it again for its own sake. They're doing it for themselves for an economic benefit. But to me, it's like, well, you can't disconnect technology from economy, right? Which is a kind of the, the crots and philosophy of this episode, right? If you see the thumbnail, uh, it's kind of clear. But this idea, again, that the mode of production can be separated from the technology. And I think a lot of socialists do this. We're going to get to that later, but I want to underpin that 
I think it's unfair to say, well, they're not revolting against technology. It's like, well, yeah, they are. It's technology that's threatening them. So they're not like primitivists, right? We're not going to look back and be like, oh, these people are just like us. They're not. We can take lessons from these people, but they're revolting against a certain piece of the context that's going no, on they, with the Industrial Revolution. They are for sure. And there's another section here from the British Library that's depicting the effects of the war on a Yorkshire cloth manufacturing community in which mill operatives have become so desperately poor that they must consider emigration. And this this tells you that the, the Luddites that we're going to be talking about were mill workers. They were weavers. They were losing their, their lives and their industry to automation, like Art was just talking about. And it, it's not something where you can just say nowadays, like, like oh, wow. Um, cab drivers are losing their work due to the effects of Uber and Lyft. These people are literally being automated out of their existence, which is something that we have not seen in mass like this until very recently. So it's a very strange predicament that these people found themselves in, and they took that predicament and turned it into a way that we personally agree with but we're here to tell you why you should agree with it too yeah and actually in relation to that there's something called the luddite fallacy which basically describes this idea that oh well there's going to be lasting harmful effects on unemployment because of automation um and a lot of people historically like no like that's the whole idea no it will make everything fine you know, the pro-capitalist innovators would be, no, people will get new jobs. We'll retrain them. But we find that that doesn't work. Learn to code. Learn to just learn to code. Hey, give up, give up your service job and learn the code. Why didn't they just think about that? Why didn't you just do that? You know, why didn't these weavers just learn to throw a coal into the fires? Right. Why didn't they just learn to do that? Yeah, these people that had been doing these jobs since they were literally children, just just figure out something else. You know, why don't and you also, why don't you construct the machine? How about that? Get <laughs> smart enough, get an education, and why don't you build the machine that took your job? How about that? And I want to point out too, a lot of these crafts are like handed down from the family. So like these are like long-standing traditions. This isn't just like, oh, I decided to be a weaver. For many of these people, this is a long-term familial, like your family were all weavers or they're all within the craft. Not all the time, but usually they're based around this craft. Yes. So it's almost for many of them, particularly men who whether you know this this is the nature of it, they're the leaders of the household in the sense of being the breadwinners. Think of how dehumanizing or in, emasculating that is to find out that I'm going to lose what has been in my family for generations, a practice, a skill, right? How dehumanizing that is. No, exactly. And I think a lot of people forget too, especially in um, in European history, I'm not sure quite as much with uh, Asian or African or any other types of history where this comes from. But a lot of people forget that their European last names often come from the professions that their mm -hmm. ancestors were doing. So in some cases, like you're saying with weavers, these people have been doing this for, if not decades, centuries. And this is where their even their last names have come from. So I don't think we can really quantify the amount of I want to say misery, but not necessarily even misery, uh, but like the the embarrassment and the emascula um, emasculation and things that these people are experiencing from losing their their livelihoods like this.
Yeah, and to give some examples, archer, barber, bowman, brewer, butler, carpenter, carver, cook, draper, farmer, fisher, forester, fowler, gardener, hunter, mason, miller, piper, potter, saddler, etc., etc., shepherd, right, wheeler, weaver. Like, where do you think these names come from now? Like, obviously, those names have been, right, those names don't mean quite the same thing, especially among, like, the, the diaspora, like, people that are, like, have English or Irish ancestry or whatever that have moved here or abroad. That means a lot less now, right? Uh, but think about it like this even. When people, and you see this in movies and in literature, when someone, it's similar to when someone's like, oh, this house or this farm has been in my family for generations, and then some big corporation comes and fucking buys it from them. Or they go fucking, in, or poverty takes it from them, right? Think about, like, it's quite similar. And so it's not just you're losing your job, you're losing a legacy. And some people, I think leftists in particular, don't really give a shit about that stuff. And, but, you know, it doesn't matter because they don't know how to talk to people. So, of course, they don't <laughs> understand why that's important. <laughs> you know, they'll probably celebrate, but like, yeah, down with your traditions. Down, yeah. down, down with your communal family, uh, you know, because, again, that's another thing is uh, with enclosure, you're losing land that has literally been worked by your family for generation immemorial. And then it's taken from them and they're forced into the cities. But because um leftists love progress they worship that they want your traditions to go away and of course people will soundbite this or be like oh you love tradition you're basically a fascist i'm not saying tradition in an abstract national sense but tradition in which it's in your family right that's not a bad thing that's that's not something that has to be conflated with like the idea of tradition in some like fascistic sense or nationalistic no sense. and what i want is i want the average 21st century leftist to go back to the united kingdom in 1811 and just tell these people well actually if you've never mm -hmm. heard of this thing called communism let me explain it to you you should actually be glad that your livelihood is being taken away because if it was just under a different mode of production this technology wouldn't be oppressive it would be liberating you actually mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And of course, people are gonna be like, well, what about the big landlords and the and the land? <laughs> well, yeah, fuck them. But again, they're not working the land. The, and of, of course, a lot of these peasants also don't own their land, right? They work it, which is why I said it earlier, they work the land that is owned by a lord, right? So we're not out here defending the, you know, we're not going to argue against the expropriation of large land holdings. But that's to think that's comparable to like a family having like a modest farm at this time period or now in some places right um the, the things terrible. that these peasants are experiencing in the uk is the exact same well not the exact same but it's very similar in terms of their relations to uh, their relationship to the land that they live on as the ukrainian peasant during the russian revolution and before it, it, it's it's no different and people will see one way as the the ukrainian peasant as being um uh, taken advantage of and um I can't think of the word that I'm trying to find, but taken advantage of by the large aristocratic landowners. But when they look at the Luddites who are losing their way of life, losing their land, being forced into cities, they'll just ignore it. They say, oh, these people were bad because they hated technology. <laughs> right, right. And it's not that they just hate technology. Again, they're trying to defend themselves from destitute poverty. And in fact, if you disagree with the Luddites, you have to support the destitute conditions they found themselves in which is actually of course if if anyone could point to me or point to me a point in industrialization in any country which didn't have these conditions 
You know, I'd have to see it a lot about my beliefs, but there isn't, I don't know anyone because again, the whole idea is it's very Christian or very religious suffer now and the future will be good. Right. Even if not for you, for your children. But of course that never worked. Yeah. The right? wasp, didn't work. the wasp work ethic that built this country. <laughs> right. I like, I remember talking to my grandparents, like, you know, the genocide of native Americans or the gilded age, those were bad. But it made our country what it is today. I'm like, poverty? (laughs) I'm not sure what you mean, the country today. Those same people then will talk about, uh, will talk about revolution against the predominant class structure and just talk about how bad it is and it will never lead to anything good. This people in this country make me want to blow my brains out. (laughs) Uh, uh, But we're going to move on a little bit and return to the historic Luddites. Yeah, yeah, so, we got off track. We're stupid, sorry. Uh, and, you know, Brady, Brady, you know, Brady's got to iron out the details a little bit here. Um, but, so, in resistance, again, so we have the Napoleonic Wars. So the first year and a half, two years, the government actually really struggles to crack down on the Luddites because it's decentralized. It is Based. during the time of conflict where where the forces the soldiers are out fighting and also remember this most soldiers have not signed up because they want to do this they want to fight most of them are doing it because the option is starve or go and kill people those are your two options i think we do also though need to take into account the the idea in especially in britain but in in most western countries the the social pressure of the glorification of the military man as well um, these these men who would decide normally to take poverty over going and fighting in a war have to then deal with the ostracization from society because they didn't go and fight in that war. They're seen as cowards. Right. They're seen as people who wouldn't defend their homes and their families. Um, so there's there's multiple components to this as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's it's oh well, well you might even fight for your country, of course, of course. Um, but there's two things in play legally at this time. So in 1788, um, to kind of, and this is where you start to see kind of the modern capitalist property laws. You have something called the, the short version of it is the Protection of Stocking Frames Act in 1788, which increased penalties for destroying factory equipment or not, or not respecting it. Like if you borrow, like if it's loaned to you, a, a power loom is loaned to you and you don't return it. Uh, things of that nature. So again, kind of modern property laws. Uh, that's an existing law that's used against the Luddites. Uh, not in, within uh, Nottingham in the 11th of March, 1811, which is kind of seen as like the beginning or like the peak. I shouldn't say the peak, excuse me. It's it's a watershed moment for this movement. It's when they come into the limelight. Um, they destroy something like over 60 frames. And then in retaliation for this, you have the destruction of stocking frames, et cetera, Act of 1812, which raises this to a capital felony, meaning you can use the death penalty can be utilized against you. You know, what's funny is I think Jeff Bezos is actually advocating for this in the United States for Amazon factory warehouse workers. If you destroy the little robots that take the boxes along the path to get them shipped to you, um, they're just going to kill you. That's what they want the government to do. So remember that, folks. <laughs> and so point being is these are they're now you're trying to use legal you know they're trying to legalize the the crackdown on the luddites um if you look into it from my understanding the 1812 act 
and there's different versions that supersede these acts mm -hmm. um but most of them these laws while the death penalty is allowed through them the actually judges and such don't tend to use these laws they they use existing or pre-existing uh legal legal options provided to them um but i want to point out some for lack of a better word, we'll say chapters or or local regions of the Luddite movement. You actually see people like doing like write-in campaigns, right? Oh, we just need to act, or they're trying to negotiate. A lot of this came down to wages, so they have their like trades or their guilds trying to negotiate with um, either the government or employers or guild leaders, whoever. And of course, it falls on deaf ears because they don't give a fuck. Surprise! <laughs> cap the capitalists in the state don't give a shit about people. What? If you didn't know that. <laughs> Um, so a lot of them, it's, they don't just jump into violence. They try to use peaceful existing means and they're ignored. And so again, going back to that collective bargaining by riot, they feel these, are, this is their last option. They have tried to be heard and they haven't been, they haven't been respected. They haven't been given any, uh, justice or, or, or respect. So they go with, to what they think and which is true. Like surprise, this is how, what the realization people come to today is property is valued over people so you need to hit it where it hurts and for the the business owners of the day it's these looms which you know these are relatively new and they're expensive as shit and so they come in they'll burn well usually what these luddites will do they'll blacken their faces with like charcoal they'll cross dress uh -oh. they'll just i know i know i know uh don't we, look at the just here them? turn it off turn it off are we are we canceling the Luddites for blackface? They they are absolutely canceled. <laughs> and so they cross dress. Um, they 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 use the cover of the night. They'll burn down factor uh, factories or uh, they'll destroy specific machinery um, in particular. So they'll smash it. Right. If you see the picture, if you look up the Luddites, it's like two guys with sledgehammers hitting the machine. Uh, burn specific machinery, or in some cases, they'll assassinate. Uh, mill owners or or technicians uh the people that make the machines work not the workers so much but the ones that like own the machines or creating or fixing them they'll usually the sometimes assassinating them wasn't off the table for the luddites and it's important too that they had mass support like movements like this don't exist for five years without that support because no, these are all and this is a movement that's you know people typically know who they are like yeah they'll go in the cover of the night but it probably wouldn't be a bit surprised who it is because most of the people again are these still craftsmen and in a region they don't have the freeway right to just jump into a different city and go and riot there it's probably going to be pretty obvious so you have to have that support for them you have to make it you have to be supported so much that it's harder for the government to crack down on you it's you know right does that make sense because people don't survive without that social that social net that social support um is there anything you wanted to add right no no i think you encompassed it pretty well no i i agree with everything that you've said so far gotcha and so the movement begins to wade when more moderate labor organizations take over pushing back on this radical terrorism well wow, we've heard that one before is when the rat you know the more moderate unions or the quote-unquote respectable working class figures <laughs> try to take the stage be like no don't look at them that's bad those they don't represent us right but also twelve thousand troops overall were like utilized to stop the luddites uh they use show trials and capital punishment uh, and the twelve thousand, from my research 
Uh, some English historian actually pointed out that was more troops used by England than during the Peninsular War, which is during in the Iberian Peninsula when France invaded Spain. England sent more troops to fight the Luddites than they did to defend Spain against France. It shows you how worried they were about this. Right, exactly. Right. And Brady, you were kind of touching on it earlier, but what is the importance? Like, why is it so... What is the relationship between the Napoleonic War and the mills? Yeah, so, I mean, even nowadays, cloth production is incredibly important. Your your clothing, um, your shoes, your... Everything. Everything is made of cloth just about as much as everything is made of plastic. And mm-hmm. you can think about it even back then, all of the military uniforms that they were making, uh, ship sails, uh, everything. Everything was made with cloth. It's incredibly valuable. The pieces that are used to make cloth are, are worth nothing until you have somebody who's skilled enough to put them together. So when these the Luddites are attacking these machines, it's basically a money printer during a wartime to produce cloth and the Luddites were turning the money printer off. And in fact, they were smashing it and burning the money printer. <laughs> mm-hmm. What I guess we can, uh, do you think now's a good time to move into uh, Marx's conception of the Luddites? Oh boy. I've been looking forward to this part. Yeah. 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 Let's, let's, let's move into that. I think that'll be fun. And I hope cool. we get some good spirited discussion in the, in the <laughs> comments section. So Marx wrote, quote, the enormous destruction of machinery that occurred in the English manufacturing districts during the first 10 years of the century, chiefly caused by the employment of the power loom and known as the Luddite movement, gave the anti-Jacobite governments of Sidmouth and the like a pretext for the most reactionary and forcible measures. It took both time and experience before the work people learned to distinguish between the machinery and its deployment by capital and to direct <laughs> their attacks, not against the material instruments of production, but against the mode in which they are used. <laughs> I love it. Every modern fucking tech-obsessed leftist, this is what they say every single time. Oh, it's just the mode of production, guys. You're not being enslaved. Exactly. It's a, and it's also, it's, um, Marx is doing a, he's doing a victim blaming. He is. He's saying, he's saying, oh, well, you didn't revolt the way I think you should have. Uh, and that's why they repressed you so badly. Like, you actually see, now there is times to critique, okay, you tried to do this, and the result was this. There is a room for debating, like, oh, you actually ended up justifying the U.S. doing this, or your government doing this. But he is looking back on an inexperienced working class and judging them from the standards of, well, we know now what that would have done. Well, no, they they didn't. They didn't know. And again, they're just, they're not even trying to do a revolution. They're trying to, they're just trying to protect their livelihood. They just want a paycheck. They don't want to starve. No. And, you know, this, this logic, again, I'll quote one more time. It took both time and experience before the work people learned to distinguish between machinery and its employment by capital and to direct their attacks, not against the material instruments of production, but against the mode in which they are used. They should have had a vanguard. Then the silly, stupid working people would have been able to distinguish uh, their oppression better. Thanks, Carl. I appreciate it. And so the issue here, if you haven't noticed, is we don't believe that. Um, Luddite, we'll, we'll use the term uh, anti-tech anarchists because not everyone that's a part of the uncivilized team or the uncivilized, the people surrounding uncivilized aren't all primitivists. Like, you know, I identify as a primitivist, but I know Brady himself does not. But we kind of reunited in understanding that technology 
whatever we would choose to define that as is an enslaving entity. Um, and so a lot of people, can, you know, they, they appeal to the, well, the material conditions and Freddie Perlman in Against History, Against Leviathan wrote, um, the first Leviathan did not, does not revolutionize the, the conditions of production for it institutes these. It itself is synonymous with material conditions of production. The first Leviathan revolutionizes the conditions of existence itself, not only for human beings, but of all living beings and of Mother Earth herself. And he goes on to say later, the surplus product is nearly another name for Leviathan's material conditions, its entrails. It can hardly exist by itself, suspended in midair, ripe for the beastly carcass to form around it. And so this idea that we have to appeal to material conditions is actually just playing into the logic of an oppressive system, which is not just capitalism, but industrial society or civilization at large. Uh, and the issue with disconnecting machinery or technology from capitalism or from the mode of production, whatever you want to say, is you would you would have to admit under socialism, these mines, which whether they are for your cell phone, your electric car vehicle, to build the spaceships that go and mine or mine space, mine the asteroids, whatever, you are okay with what would essentially be slavery. No one is willingly going in there. And I hear I hear the the debates are already. We'll automate it. Okay, so what about before we automate it? Or who's automated? Where are we getting the materials to automate it? At some point, you have to accept either long-term slavery or short-term slavery. But, it is one or the but, other. But if we just pay the Congolese child miners $15 an hour, then it's okay. It's fine. We can get them in there, you know? Just give them a better better uh, life situation. Then mm -hmm. they'll go do it because they want to. Because it's the for the betterment of humanity, you know? Mm-hmm. And so what I, what I find really funny is we are i've seen left communists accuse us of liberalism that we appeal to like a liberal conception of history the funny thing is is these radicals who love technological progress actually the liberals because it was the liberal industrialists who are saying oh through industry you'll have free time you'll have this and that <laughs> same thing the marxists are saying the Marxists and liberals have the same conception the only difference is the liberals think it can happen under capitalism and the Marxists think it will happen under socialism. That is the only fundamental difference between the two. And of course, every application we've seen of Marxist socialism has been some of the most repressive capitalism possible. So maybe they're not so uh -oh. different after all. Now we're really going to have some comments in the comment section. <laughs> <laughs> it just, I don't, even as a com, you know, when I had my Marxist background, I still considered myself anti-tech. Like I, I was just rooted in a deeper Marxist analysis like this idea of historical materialism, but like, I still couldn't be okay. Cause you'd even have to like, for, let's say the transhumanist argument, right? I love fucking arguing with anarcho-transhumanists. I haven't done forever. So if any of you want to come into the comment section, we'd all appreciate it. They will say, well, again, in the future, we won't have this or we won't have that. It's like, okay. So you still have to accept a horrible transition. Of course, the only transhumanists that exist like, I want to see a large transhumanist movement in the third world, or the developed or the imperialized world. Can they show me those? Or do they only exist in the first world? The greatest thing about it is, is that these people will recognize the, the social pressure or the social repression that comes with political systems, anarchists, economic systems, communists, and other anarchists. But they won't do it when it comes to technology. Because it, it is a drug. The average person who is addicted to fentanyl 
may or may not recognize that it's bad for them. And if they do recognize it's bad for them, they're still doing it. It, that's mm-hmm. the exact way that it is with the mentality when it comes to mass technological use in on the planet. It's just how it is. It's a drug. Some of us recognize that it's bad for us and we still use it, like both of us who are talking to you on this podcast right now. <laughs> and some people don't, and they just go their entire lives defending this system that is ultimately taking their liberties away. Right. And it's, it's also one of those, we talked about efficiency earlier. Um, you know, the yesterday we were recording this on the 11th of June. Yesterday, Ted Jasinski passed away at the age of 81. RIP. His ideas, RIP. So I'm not going to refer to him, but this is where people are going to know. A lot, a lot of people that listen to us have probably read or know of Ted. He got a lot of his ideas from this guy named Jacques Ellul. He wrote this book, The Technological Society. He had this idea of the technique, which it's it, it not everyone defines it the same way, but you can say it's a complex of of the technology and the means and the methods of to, that are geared towards efficiency, right? So many people say that it's kind of just synonymous with the industrial revolution. He's critical of that. He thinks it's related, but it's not quite the same thing. But efficiency, you know, it's economic efficiency. It's dehumanizing. Like, oh, at one point, you can be a baker, right? You put your heart and soul into it, you know, whatever. It's your own skill. You do it and then you give it to someone. That's more meaningful. Or even if I bake Brady a cake, that's different than if I go and buy a cake for him, right? Those are two substantially different things. But the more efficient thing, then this is both true for capitalism and for socialism, is the more efficient thing is buying the cake, right? It is dehumanizing. It it loses something. And I've seen people argue, well, it just, they're like, that's just liberal or that's just fanciful. Those those two aren't any different. You're just applying a moral virtue to it, which I'd say, do you talk to people? Do you have any relationships that aren't mediated by technology? Because no. Brady, would you, would you agree that you think if someone wanted to do something for you, whether it's a birthday or maybe it's a partner and anniversary, them making you something, well, it's nice to be, to have someone buy and give you something. It's substantially different for them to put the time in and make something for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been given so many uh, material gifts throughout my life, things that were purchased, but I'm still wearing a bracelet that my cousin made for me. He is now nine years old that he made for me when he was two years old, and I have not taken it off a day since he did that. Other gifts that I've been given, I mean, shoot, it's probably been thrown away or in a box somewhere, and I don't even know where they are. Right, right. There is something, I don't know the word, you can say it's more human, it's more personable, whatever word, it's just that society tends to weed those things out, whether it's the craftsman, the small shop owner, and people are going to read that as, oh, you're trying to defend the petty bourgeoisie. No, there are aspects of the petty bourgeoisie, someone who has their own skills, right, that I can admire. I don't admire what it means in the economic system we exist in. People are going to try and conflate those things, right? But Zerzan talks about in a people's history of civilization, like, think about the stone tools of the Stone Age or people existing today, right? They have those own skills. They are equitable. Everyone can build whatever, theoretically. Now, you might have cultures that say women do this, men do that. Okay, but theoretically, everyone can do something. But in a highly industrial society, Brady, can you feasibly operate a nuclear si- a nuclear uh, energy facility? Give me like 10 minutes and I'll figure it out. 
So point being is that not it, it incentivizes a division of labor. So Brady and I both know these people, right? The Marxists, the anarchists are like, we're going to have a, a society without a division of labor. And Marxists and anarchists kind of understand these things differently because it's a technical and a social division of labor. The social is that Brady doesn't have to be, you know, it's the Karl Marx quote that I'm paraphrase. I'll be a, a movie critic by night. Uh, or a fisherman than a movie critic, whatever, right? But I'm neither of those scenes, but I'm all of them. Mm. And then there's the 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 social, then the technical. It's oh well, some people are going to have to be better at some at other, you know, at some things than others, whatever. Anarchists tend to take this a little bit further, but even Bakunin defended, oh, I defer to the specialist, which I think is actually incompatible with anarchism. That you have to appeal to a specialist, and those are specialists are embedded into an industrial system because not everyone can know everything which means that you have to give up some of your autonomy with the hope that you know that the dude working at the nuclear energy facility won't fuck up exactly you're, you're putting your livelihood your your autonomy your safety all those things into the hands of the other think about the, the supply chains like, are you, is everyone going to be okay when the supply chains finally shit out on us and you don't get your toilet paper, you don't get clean water in a bottle, you don't get food, right? All of these things, but anarchists, leftists generally, but it's really disappointing for anarchists because they don't see the contradiction, is they don't see how that's incompatible with anarchism. No, they don't. Absolutely not. And so the whole point of this is that, my whole tirade here, and then I'll give time for Brady to talk again, is that... You cannot feasibly be pro-freedom, pro-egalitarianism, pro-anarchy, and pro-industrialization. Now we can have a conversation about what is a sustainable level of technology, but most people are going to be like, well, solar panels, uh, uh, public transportation. And then, of course, because they are so uncreative, they are so unradical that they simply imagine what is existing today, but just a little bit better and everything will be okay. Uh, yes, the social democrat approach. Yeah, it's I, you know it's good when substantially everyone's basically just a social democrat. Guys, all of our problems would go away if we were more like Denmark. So Brady, <laughs> let's hear some of your, your ideas. You haven't been on for a while. Let's hear what is your perspective on the relationship between technology, the mode of production, and all those things that I just talked about. I will be totally honest that I agree with everything that you've said. Like you stated earlier, not everybody who is in the uncivilized network is a primitivist. I am not. I just consider myself an anarchist. And in that respect, I consider having a critique of technology to be as important to, as having a critique of any other mode of production or social relationship. Um, so for me, I don't even call myself an anti-tech anarchist or a primitivist an anarcho-primitivist, a Luddite. I just call myself an anarchist. Uh, so you'll hear no complaints from me in anything that you have just stated. I wholeheartedly agree. Well, you know, because I just never miss, you know. As everyone knows, uh, I've been run I, okay, I've been running this, this show for like 12 episodes without you. I think people know at this time, I don't miss. 12 episodes in three years? hold on how many episodes did we do together i just i want to say there's probably uh, more consistency we're not we're not talking about that right now we're we're living in the moment and yeah uh, i mean that was that was the luddite rebellion the luddite people the base chad warriors of that of the isles of britain and i hope everyone has a great day art do you have anything else left to say 
Yeah, so I'm not sure when this episode is out, but it should be out already. I have a zine coming out called Plastic in Utero, a journal of anti anarchy reborn from the compost of wasteland modernity. I will try and get that God, out. That is a long title. You need to shorten that one. Sorry, it's, it's already <laughs> pasted on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's already pasted on. We can't go back. Um, I know, I know. So... I will try and advertise that more so on the podcast. It's $3 a copy. And then if you want bulk orders, we can talk about pricing differences. Um, I prefer reach out to me on Instagram or through the comment section. And then I can get your email or whatever you want to do. Uh, I'll have a PO box set up. You can do money orders through the mail. Uh, we can do like an electronic payment if that's easier for you. We'll figure something out. Uh, so John Zerzan's included, Julian Lehner, who we've had on the podcast, uh, Jason Rogers, who I've reviewed, Emmanuel is also featured under a different name. There's a lot of really great stuff in here that I'm really happy. It's my first scene I've ever done. So if anyone is interested in that, uh, reach out uh, through the comment section. If you follow me on Instagram, which is Paleolithicism, I've recently brought my Instagram back for the purpose of the zine. Uh, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I just want to say I was supposed to write something for the zine, but life happened. I moved. Um, my, my job is crazy. Everything is crazy. But I'm going to try to write something uh, about a historical concept for the next one. If I don't do that, everyone can yell at me. Yep, that's the only way that I'll get things done is if people hold me accountable. So let us know what you think. And it's nice to be back. Um, I don't know how often I will be back, but I'm going to try to come back more often. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Art, for helping me today. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thanks. Before we leave, I just want to point out, Brady's been saying he's going to write something since I've known him, and I've known him <laughs> since 2017. So don't keep your hopes up. There, I just want to say, he's been saying, Art, I should write something. You should help me. Never once has this man written a goddamn thing in his life. No, no, not since, uh, not since school. <laughs>